Welcome back to the Oxford Comment. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michelle. We have a special treat for everyone today. Lauren and I are Skyping with Kevin Whitehead, who many of you may know from NPR's Fresh Air. He is publishing a book with us called Why Jazz? And today he's going to give us his very own crash course on jazz. For those of you who don't know anything about jazz, like me, or are looking for a refresher, or maybe just to learn some cool stuff, this is the podcast for you. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. So, we are ready. What song do you want to start us out with? I thought, listen to a few pieces today, and since the blues is so essential to jazz, I thought a few of them should be blues, uh, including the first one I want to listen to. It's by Louis Armstrong's Hot Five uh, from 1927. This is... Uh, probably the most famous of Armstrong's groups. He recorded many classics with them. I want to listen to one which is not so well known, but I think is very fascinating. It's a piece called I'm Not Rough. And in this case, the Hot Five is actually a Hot Six because the uh, guitarist Lonnie Johnson has been added to the piece. All right, let's hear the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So what did we just hear there? Uh, that stomping piano introduction there, the pianist is uh, uh, Lil Harden Armstrong, uh, Armstrong's wife. And actually, in your book, you say that early jazz instruments were considered unfeminine? Yeah, except for the piano and the harp, which comes uh, about a little bit in the 1930s. It was uh, considered that women were not really, uh, wouldn't be dignified for them to be horn players. Uh, for example, and I think some of this has to do with this notion that you read in some places that all horns are potential phallic symbols. Huh. I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, there's also just the, the uh, general sexism of the time. There was a feeling that women jazz musicians uh, would not be able to stand up to the rigors of the road, despite blues singers like Bessie Smith and R. Rainey. That kept me, got to treat me right, cause I'm crazy about my loving, and I must have... It's a, um, a, a chorus, one stanza of the blues that occurs in the middle of the piece, and I find this really interesting for 1927 because with Armstrong singing and Lonnie Johnson playing that accompaniment on the guitar, basically it's a, a replication of the sound of country blues, a sound which is barely heard on record by 1927, just turning up at that time. Hmm. All right, so let's let's go to the end. This is really the thing that I find most interesting about this piece is this uh, uh, the fake skipping record ending. Um, for some reason, this is not talked about so very much. It's one of the first gimmick endings on records that I know. Uh, was recorded live to sound like a record that's skipping. On old 78 players, um, to keep the needle from immediately going straight to the center uh, of the record, there was a, a spring that exerted a little bit of counter pressure to keep the, uh, the needle from doing that. And as the needle got closer to the middle of the record, the spring pressure got higher, and it was not unusual to have a, a needle kind of skip back a little bit at the end. So it's a nice little uh, practical joke on the listener who might think that their record is actually skipping and then they get up uh, and cross the room to fix it. Uh, it's also kind of a, a frank acknowledgement that um, 
78 records were an imprecise technology, that these skips did happen. And also, I think this is something I was just thinking about the other day, that I think a lot of these early blues records were actually uh, pressed on really cheap shellac, so maybe they were more likely to uh, skip in this way than, than other records would. I'm not positively sure about that, but I like it as a theory because it would unite the sort of country blues aspect and the skipping record uh, uh, aspect. I'm going to file really that under fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I, that's in the uh, interesting if true file, I believe. All right, so what's up next? Uh, another blues. I wanted to listen to something by uh, uh, Count Basie, actually a small group drawn from the Count Basie Big Band of 1936. They were recording as Jones Smith Incorporated. To, to start off, why don't we hear um, the introductory choruses where Carl Smith is sort of uh, pecking out a few notes on trumpet and Lester Young is playing this ascending uh, four-note figure in the tenor saxophone. That's like a classic example of how Basie can really swing like crazy uh, while playing very few notes. Uh, I got Basie on piano. Ooh, yeah, let, let's hear that once more. <laughs> oh, you guys are good at this. <laughs> Okay, we just heard uh, one of the vocal choruses on the record. Uh, Jimmy Rushing, as I mentioned, is a singer. And uh, any questions? Yeah, that that line, "You're gonna long for me, baby, one of these old rainy days." It does reinforce this uh, uh, whole idea about the blues, a lot of which comes from the writer Albert Murray. That the blues is not crying in your beer music, but is uh, a music of defiance of hard times. And I think that's one reason I like that verse, is that um, there is that sense at the end, I may be down now, but I'm not going to be like that the whole time. The sun's going to shine in my back door someday. And in your book, you, you have this one line where you say, swing is like music skipping down a sidewalk. You like that one? I do. She's a bit proud of that one. I thought she about she printed it out and put it on her desk. <laughs> oh well, there you go. <laughs> now I've arrived. Yeah, it's a, it's swing. It's it's so hard to explain. It's such a uh, it's one of those concepts that you know when you hear it. It has a lot to do with um, phrasing a little bit before or a little bit behind the beat, and that's what the skipping because it's sort of an irregular motion that has this strong uh, forward thrust. So we've covered Louis and Basie. Another name that we probably should know something about is Duke Ellington. Everybody should know about Duke Ellington. <laughs> I try to stay away from superlatives. I try not to say that this is the best record or so-and-so was the best something or other. But I think when it comes to jazz band leaders, you really have to give it to Ellington as uh, the greatest of them all. Partly for the way... He uh, exploited the, the, the quirks and tendencies of his musicians, not so much with uh, Coco, which is a piece I like to listen to, a classic Ellington blues from 1940. Uh, it's uh, seven 12-bar blues choruses uh, building in complexity, volume, and excitement, and it's all built on one brick. Well, that little da-da-da-da, that uh, three short notes followed by a longer one, Basically, that comes through in the piece in all sorts of different ways. 
used a, a kind of a, a plumber's rubber plunger to kind of modify the sound of the instrument to make it sound more like it's talking. It's, it's the kind of effect that the wah-wah pedal was invented for in the 1960s uh, for guitar players to sing. listened to this piece many, many, many times, and in the course of writing the book, there was something I, I hadn't caught on to before that suddenly struck me, that on the fourth chorus, uh, following Tricky Sandman's uh, uh, plunger muted trombone solo, there's this interesting chorus where Ellington plays this piano commentary that sounds like uh, keys flying off the piano in a cartoon. And then there are these uh, uh, syncopated punches from the trumpets in the background and a rising saxophone figure in that same uh, three short notes, one long note rhythm, I suddenly realized this is a paraphrase of that first chorus of Basie's Boogie Boogie. Oh, Kevin, you're saying if we listen to Coco, we'll actually be able to hear the rhythm of the first chorus in Boogie Woogie, which we yeah, just it's heard. Yeah, it's even more than the rhythm. It's like the same melodic shapes coming from the, the, the brass uh, following the line that Osmond's uh, trumpet plays. And the saxophones with that ascending figure is basically mimicking what uh, Lester Young was doing. Can we go back to Boogie Woogie and hear that once more? Let's do that. You guys can all hear the parallel between Boogie Woogie and Coco. <laughs> so, do many people know about this parallel between these it's, two songs? I, I hadn't come across it in any other books. I'm searching around on um, some jazz discussion sites, and other people have stumbled across it, but it seems maybe not as well known as it should be. I think this is a good example of why knowing some history helps, because jazz is so full of allusions. Um, is it re it's really common for jazz to be very self-referential like this? Uh, it, it is. I think it, partly it's because a lot of jazz fans um, will recognize uh, these things, but also it's not really so important to recognize what now I'll argue against my own point. Because I think... Um, a lot of times it's sort of musically satisfying in its own right. I don't think that anybody's appreciation for what a masterpiece Coco is is substantially uh, discounted by not spotting that reference. Shall we skip ahead to some uh, some later music now? Yeah, um, let's do it. <laughs> let's look at uh, a piece by the drummer Ronald Shannon Jackson and his band, the Decoding Society, uh, from 1982. This piece is called Iola. Her name was Iola. She was a shark. You know, I don't get a lot of Manilow references when I'm doing these things. <laughs> With yellow ribbons in her hair. Cursing somebody for having that stuck in my head for the rest of the day. Okay. Uh, Shannon Jackson kicks it off on uh, bass drum, snare, and hi-hat. He's playing this uh, rhythm that's sort of like a cross between a, a march and a New Orleans funk beat. He's not from New Orleans, he's from Fort Worth. And then we get to the moment where the horns enter. It almost sounds to me like a football halftime band moving at half speed. Well, unless, unless you were at my high school, because uh, we were the Scots. <laughs> 
So everybody was dressed in kilts and uh, playing bagpipes for the most part. I would love to hear a bagpipe version of Iola, but I have not heard one yet. I'll call. Uh, uh, I'll give him a call. See what I can do. The way those loops go round and round, they kind of cross each other and everything. You also get this. Uh, this is something that you hear a lot in music of the 1980s. Uh, it's kind of like music that uh, chases its own tail. Uh, in terms of the uh, uh, throwbacks to earlier music, I should also mention uh, the use of the banjo there. It's very unusual, the banjo not considered a hip instrument in any way in jazz in the 1980s. So. I mean, has the banjo ever been hip? <laughs> uh, in the 1920s? So having the, the banjo in there is a, another throwback to uh, an earlier phase of jazz. Um, what are we going to hear next? Last piece I want to listen to, it's another blues. Uh, and it was recorded in the year 2000. It's from a duet album called Freefall by uh, the veteran pianist Kenny Barron and the young and very talented uh, violinist Regina Carter. And this is a, a blues by Thelonious Monk called Mysterioso. It's a, a kind of a classic Monk composition. Monk was famous for sort of being a kind of a minimalist. And this is a, a, a really nice example. Uh, Mysterioso is a very skeletal kind of a blues. It's based on uh, paired notes that kind of walk up and down scales. So a high note and a low note, or rather a low note and a high note that are always paired up. And so, since this recording is for a duo, they had this nice idea that, that uh, at the opening choruses, at least, uh, each of them would take one note in that pair. And it keeps changing from chorus to chorus. Uh, it's a really nice example of how musicians were supposed to kind of uh, pour back in the blues content that Monk stripped away. Should we go through it like uh, chorus by chorus, and I can just kind of note uh, the different strategies? Yeah, if you can, um, and we'll listen for those, those low and high pairs. Okay. Let's get started. Okay, the first uh, the first chorus, um, the violin is being plucked. We play pizzicato, and in those pairs, violin goes first, and it's followed by piano. Second chorus kind of uh, uh, reverses that procedure. This time, you have the piano going first, playing those paired notes, followed by the violin, and the violin is now being played by a bow rather than plucked. <coughs> Also notice that there's uh, kind of droning bass notes have been added. Uh, texture gets a little bit fuller. Okay, third chorus. This sounds like an improvised chorus for piano with uh, violin commentary. It's almost like Regina Carter was riffing, but not quite in the background. But as the chorus goes on, their voices become so equal, it's not always obvious uh, uh, who's got the solo. Now we're into the fourth chorus, and this is clearly the violin's uh, moment to shine. Mm -hmm. 
many bluesy inflections that Regina Carter is introducing, and uh, Kenny Barrett will take a more supportive role. chorus uh, to listen to. Um, this one is an improvised chorus for piano with a, a kind of lighter commentary and support for violin. Basically, the two of them just keep uh, uh, volleying and kind of interacting in a very close way. They're playing the blues, but they're modernizing it, and it's a very nice recording. So jazz keeps looking back, but you know clearly there are distinctions between each era. So in the future, how do you think people are going to talk about the jazz of today? Or how would you describe jazz today? <laughs> As you rephrase that question, probably because you're thinking of the last page of my, my book, where I say, nobody really knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, every time I go back and look at predictions that critics have made about what jazz is going to be in the future, they usually turn out wrong, so I try to avoid them myself. I, I think jazz has an infinite capacity for drawing in uh, different sounds, sounds that are in the air from pop music, uh, hip-hop rhythms, for example slowly work their way into the, the, the vocabulary of jazz drummers. I think it's, it's all part of the music kind of uh, keeping pace with the times. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, we were just treated to a selection of wonderful jazz by none other than Kevin Whitehead, author of Why Jazz and longtime jazz critic for National Public Radio's Fresh Air, which if you don't already listen to, you should. Fresh Air is available as a podcast on iTunes, just like the Oxford comment. So if you don't already subscribe, please do, and remember to leave us a review. Until next time, keep up with us at blog.oup.com. And as always, thank you to the Ben Daniels Band, which actually, Kevin, you might quite like them. So we'll hook you up with that information and some samples of their songs later. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Take care, Kevin. Bye. Bye. Sun's going to shine in my back door someday. <laughs>